0: The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. The Descendants of Jacob the patriarch of Israel had multiplied exceedingly while living in the land of Egypt. And Egypt's Pharaoh, concerned with their growing numbers and strength, oppressed and enslaved the Hebrews. God's people suffered immensely under the crushing weight of Pharaoh's cruelty. And the people cried out to their God for help. And God heard their groaning, and remembered his covenant.
1: It seems a bit cliche to say that life is a journey. You've heard that before, right? Life is a journey. It seems so a cliche to us. I know that that's what we say, but, but you know, life really is a journey. I think the reason why it's become so popular for us to say that is is because it's a great way to view all of life. The plea to God for help, the people of Israel, began a journey of faith uh, that was headed toward an awesome place. A journey uh, that has so much to say to us about our own journey of life. And how we relate to God, how God relates to us all along the way. And we have the privilege of starting a new teaching series this morning. It's going to last us 10 messages and take us uh, to Christmas. It's called Bound for Glory. It's about the journey. Study through the book of Exodus. And we're going to follow the Hebrews from Egypt into Sinai on their way uh, to their promised land. And everything that we're going to see in the book. It's about God moving to be in relationship with the Hebrew people, leading them and teaching them and shaping them into the people that he wanted them to be, the people who are his own people. And as we move through the series, what we're going to do is look at ten key words that are really going to speak to aspects of God's relationship to his people, words that I think are going to be so helpful for us. Uh, Today we're going to look at presence, purpose, power, provision, victory, grace, wisdom, love, discipline, and glory. And every one of those words representing a life-altering truth about God and about us. And we're going to get started right here with um, just, just the simple truth, the word presence, a simple truth that we all need to hear that God is with us. God is with you. Because I think we can all struggle at times with feelings of being abandoned by God, thinking that He's uninvolved in our lives at the very least or neglected by Him. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are bound for glory, if you're headed toward the eternal promised land, then you can be sure, no matter what, That God is with you. That's what we're going to see in Exodus 1 and 2 today. So um, how about you join me in prayer, and then we'll get started. Sound good? All right. Uh, Father, I pray um, uh, for those right now who are fully aware of the struggle to know that you're with them. And Father, I pray that you would make your uh, presence known in this room, uh, as you have already. I pray that you would be present with a heart of compassion for each one who would struggle with this and it seems to me God that we would all struggle with it at times show us all through your word how present you really are in our lives and how that changes things for us And God this I pray in Jesus name amen amen you agree with that prayer all right how you doing everybody good all right Um, excited about that if you're bound for glory. Um, be sure of this. Let's start with this. Um, No matter what's happened to you, no matter what's happened to you, if you're bound for glory, God is with you. The emphasis here is on what's happened to you. What's happened to you. External events, influences that are beyond your control, circumstances that happen to you. You didn't make decisions that, that caused this, Um, just things that have affected your life, again, that are beyond your control. It's really what we read in the first big uh, section here in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel had moved uh, to Egypt um, hundreds of years before, more than 400 years before. In fact, you may recall this story. You can read all of this in Genesis uh, 37 through 50, the last part of Genesis, which really is uh, Genesis, the preamble to the entire Bible, and, and sets up perfectly what happens in the book of Exodus, is where, where in Exodus, where God's people are being shaped together. and Well, this man Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and um, when he got down there, <clears throat> A series of providential circumstances took place where God was kind of working things out so that at the end of the story, without telling the entire story, at the end of the story, a Joseph becomes, this Jewish man, becomes a leader in Egypt and actually has the plan to save it from famine, and, and as a result, he gets to invite his family to come and live with him in Egypt. And over the next 400 plus years, they grow and they multiply and they become a very strong nation, the nation of Israel, living within the borders of Egypt. And really, that's everything that you read in the first few verses. Notice verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So what we could say about the first 400 years of Egypt Egypt hosting Israel is, it was a very good thing for Israel. They were not in slavery. They were living free. They were contributing members of Egyptian society. Everything was great. Then there comes this turning point, verse 8. You'll see it with me. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. Didn't know he was a leader 400 years prior. Didn't know that he had actually saved the Egyptian nation. Didn't know anything about that. Didn't know that Pharaoh, his predecessor, had invited Joseph to bring his family to Egypt. So they too would be saved during the famine. Just didn't even know any of that. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. If war breaks out, they join our enemies, fight against us, and escape from the land. Now, Israel had given zero indication that this would ever happen. They were were peacefully coexisting with the Egyptian people. But Pharaoh's got in his mind that this could be a problem. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities. Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, get this, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel for no good reason. Israel had not made any decisions at all that were bringing these difficult circumstances upon them. So they ruthlessly, verse 13, made the people of Israel work as slaves made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick, all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Pharaoh just ramping it up and increasing the burden and the oppression on the people. Again, external circumstances, nothing they had done. And then it just becomes horrific. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named, those two names, verse 16, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Pharaoh instructs the midwives midwives to commit infanticide of all the male babies born to the Hebrews. A command of verse 17 says that they refused to obey. The midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, who by the way, a little ethics lesson, uh, did not deserve the truth. Okay, there, There's your ethics lesson of what these midwives did. Did not deserve the truth. Um, Why have you done this and let these male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Despite the oppression, despite the horrors of infanticide among the people, they continue to grow and prosper and become strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. I mean, God just overwhelmingly blessing Blessing the the people. That's the historical background for what we read in chapter two. Then, in fact, Pharaoh even ramped things up even more in verse twenty-two. Before we get to chapter two, he commanded all his people. Forget the midwives. Now, if you see a little Hebrew boy, uh, feel free to toss him in the Nile. I mean, could we all agree this is horrific? That the circumstances that Israel was facing were awful in every way. So again, that background to what we read next in the first 10 verses of chapter 2 about this one, this one baby boy who's going to be born. A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. A woman conceived, bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, was this the reason why he was saved? Or does not every mother think her child's a fine child? That's more to the point, isn't it? Every mother thinks their child is fine. And, and that's what's going on here. He was a fine child, and she, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took, him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, dabbed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, now, this isn't coincidence. Now, this is exactly what Moses' mother planned. She knew that Pharaoh's daughter came down to the riverbank. She knew the current and the fact that the child would head in that direction. She knew all of this. She's, in essence, in a very unusual way, putting her child up for adoption to save him. Okay? That's the way they did it then, I guess. Put him in a basket, float him down the river. Verse 5 Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her servant women, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Right away she knows. There's no secret here. This isn't an Egyptian baby. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Awesome. What's going on here? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away. Take your child back now to your home. Nurse him for me. I'll give you your wage. She's now getting paid to take care of her own son. He's safe under the care of Pharaoh's household and in the care of his own mother. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. This is the hard part. And he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I I drew him out of the water. A time so desperate, through no fault of her own, through no decision she had made, she has to give up her son to save him. I love what one commentator said about all of this. It's a truly ironic reversal. The very child that Pharaoh's murderous policies were shaped to kill actually grew up in his own household. And I would add, it would grow up to lead the Hebrew people out of his country, devastating Egypt in the process. The irony in that, the twist of what God is doing here is so incredible and All that to say it doesn't matter what's happened to you. External circumstances don't matter. God is with you. And look at this next, no matter what you've done. I mean, in contrast now, in contrast to what's happened to you, there are some things, would we admit, some things that we have done. There are some things that we have done, some decisions that we have made that have put us in a certain place. So no matter what you've done, Moses, we could say, lived a pretty conflicted life. He was a, follow this now, he was a Hebrew, but he was raised as an Egyptian, and not only raised as an Egyptian, but raised in Pharaoh's own house. So he was raised uh, not in poverty, not even in working class, but he was, he's raised in wealth and, and influence, a position of power in the, in the palace of the king. I understand this, too, that um, he would have no male peers among the Hebrew people because remember the male babies were being killed and so Moses wouldn't have any friends his own age no male friends at all though he would uh, if he had stayed and married a Hebrew girl he would have had his pick because there were lots of baby girls. He would have struggled, I think, with this. He would have struggled greatly. Don't you think a Jew being raised as an Egyptian with no male friends, he would have struggled with identity? That he would have struggled with where he belonged? I'm not really an Egyptian, but I, I, I wasn't raised among the Hebrews. I don't really know them or understand them, and I don't feel like I belong there. And so it all leads to this, this struggle with identity. Verse 11, one day... When Moses had grown up, huge time lapse now between verses 10 and, 12, 10 and 11. Moses had grown up. He went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. We call that, what do we call that? We call that murder. So just write it down. Moses is a murderer. We have the facts of the case in front. He's guilty. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? (gasps) I looked this way and that. There was nobody watching. Someone saw it. Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. And it was, verse 15, when Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. So Moses goes on the run. Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He got out of Egypt and he he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the trough's to water their father's flock. The shepherds came, drove them away. But Moses, he has inside of him this rescuer thing, right? Maybe an attempt for people to like him, for him to find his place. Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Verse 18, when they came home to their father, well, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And again, a huge period of time goes by. He gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. It wasn't like he, he gave him bread and then said, oh, by the way, here's my daughter too. It wasn't that. There's a period of time here. That would be awkward. It takes a long time for a man to give away his daughter. I'm just saying. It just takes a long time. Verse 22, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in the land of Egypt. Now, he murdered a man. This isn't a circumstance that happened to him. This is a decision that he made. And it seems like things are working out for him, but, 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 he's, but he's not in Egypt, and he's not with his people. He's living as... A wanted fugitive, taking refuge in another land. And if we were to fast forward, though, to the end of his life, Deuteronomy 34, you can read it, he dies on Mount Nebo, and God gives him the privilege of being on top of the mountain just before he passes into eternity, and God allows him to to look at the entire promised land, the very thing that he'd been telling the people all along. We're leaving Egypt, we're going through Sinai. We're going to become the people of God, and God is going to give us the land that he promised to Abraham. He gives them that privilege. The Lord showed them all the land. This murderer had led God's people out of Egypt. He had given them the law. He had taught them through the tabernacle how to worship their God. If you ask Jews today, who's the greatest prophet? They'll tell you without taking a breath that it's Moses. Yet on one day, he decided to murder a man. And he was guilty of that. I need you to believe that God's grace is sufficient to forgive you of any decision that you've made in your past. God's grace is sufficient to forgive you and to cover any decision. That you've made in the past and it really starts with you coming to faith in jesus christ repenting of those sins agreeing with god about them and turning away from them and walking in the life that he's given to you finding redemption finding cleansing finding salvation through jesus christ Psalm 103 verse 12 says it so clearly that the, the Father, that God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. As far as sins can be removed from you, I've removed them away, God says. We need to do similarly with our sins. We need to agree with God about our sins, but so many of us just keep them so close to us and remind ourselves of our past. And how could God, and I don't think I could ever... Listen, you, you take your sins and remove them as far as the east is from the west, Since God has, no matter what you've done. You know, it took Moses 40 years to get there, and first he, you can see here, ran far from what God wanted for him. But no matter what's happened to you, and no matter what decisions you've made, no matter what you've done, And and as a result, no matter where you've ended up, because I think some of us have this sense that we've ended up in places where God can't use us and can't forgive us. And it's just false on its face. Again, Moses ends up in Midian. But that doesn't mean that he's not still on the journey. He thinks he's hiding. He thinks he doesn't belong anywhere. He thinks that God has forgotten about him. He thinks he's out of the game he thinks he's cut from the team but God God's not thinking that way at all God knows he's still on the journey God knows that Midian is a big part of preparing him for what's going to come next and again too many of us as Christ followers are just thinking those very things I'm hiding out here I'm, I'm, I'm keeping my distance from people. I've, I've created a bubble around myself. I'm just in a place of refuge because of decisions I've made in the past that I, I'm no use to God. As a result of rash and reckless decisions on our part, I'm not saying this is always the case for everyone, but for some here, you made rash and reckless decisions that have you in a certain place today. Well, God can still use you. His grace can still reach you. Let me give you some examples. Maybe um, you're married to an unbeliever because you wandered from your faith earlier in your life and in a period of Falling in love with someone who didn't love Jesus, you find yourself married. The scriptures speak to this. A believer should not marry an unbeliever, but there you are, and the, the result of a decision so long ago now affects your marriage, it affects your life, it affects what you can do. That's the place, that's your Midian. Maybe you're divorced, it's not going to change, it's part of your history. But as you look back on it, it's decisions you made that brought you to that place. It's not always the case, but perhaps it is for you. This is hard, I know, but maybe you had an abortion. and Maybe you were helping someone have an abortion and you contributed to it. You have the scar tissue today as a result. decision you made in the past and here you are today in a place and you think God can't use you. You think you're, 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 you're far away from him as a result. Maybe when you were a young person you felt a call to go into vocational ministry, to be a pastor, to be a missionary, to go and do something in ministry and you didn't listen to that and you went on a different path and all these years later, maybe even decades later, here you are and you're not in ministry because you didn't listen to God. Maybe you have overwhelming financial debt because of past decisions, and here it is just weighing on you, and it affects every decision and it affects your relationships, and you can't do the things you want to do because of decisions you made previously. Maybe you have children who don't respect you as a parent because of past decisions. Maybe you have a criminal record. You can't even cross the border, and you can't tell people why, you can't ever go to the States. Maybe you have poor physical health today because, again, when you were younger, you made decisions that got you into a pattern of behavior that affected your physical health today, and it limits you. That's your Midian. It's where you are. My intent there is not to open up old wounds, and if you found relief from that through Christ, then I bless you, and I I affirm that. My point is not to increase your pain, but to call out to those who, who, who have, ran, have run from God, who feel like they're distanced from Him, and to appeal to you and to tell you that no matter where you are, God is with you. No matter where you are, God's grace is sufficient for you. Nothing on that list is a deal breaker to God. Nothing on that list cannot be overcome by God's grace. You know what? Moses knew he didn't belong there. Moses, of course, is thinking he's in Midian and he's not in Egypt with his own people. But in verse 22, he says, I love this line, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And I think it's helpful for us to think in terms of, it doesn't matter what decisions we made and where we think we are, the fact of the matter is, we're all strangers here. Every single one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ have pledged our lives to be part of a different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, and so we all find ourselves living in this sin-sickened world and no matter how comfortable we think we might get here on planet earth, we flat out simply do not belong here. We're citizens of another kingdom. We should all have this unsettledness in our hearts about all of this. And because we belong to a different kingdom, the limitations of this earthly life don't really matter. Though we find ourselves here, Though we make poor decisions that affect life here and now, we all have this. We're we're all living under the weight and burden of sin apart from Christ. So these decisions, we can just set them aside if we're truly bound for glory. These decisions have been covered entirely by the blood of Jesus Christ. You believe that. And live that out. It's really clear. If you're bound for glory, be sure of this. No matter what's happened to you, uh, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've ended up as a result, God is with you. Now it's puzzling at this point in the text. We've moved through a lot. All of chapter one and most of chapter two. We've moved through all of this except for just really a couple of verses and If you're an alert observer to the scriptures as I've been reading through this, you will notice that God actually has been noticeably absent from the majority of this narrative. Except for the little blessing on the midwives, the faithful midwives, God's not mentioned. He's not mentioned in the first seven verses where where all this blessing is being poured out on the Israelites as they live in Egypt. Not mentioned there. He's not mentioned when Pharaoh decides that they're a problem and starts to oppress them and he he makes them slaves and and he oppresses them and he oppresses them again. He's not mentioned at all except with regard to the midwives in terms of the the, the, uh, the killing of these male babies in terms of Moses' birth, he's not mentioned. He doesn't intervene at all when Moses murders the Egyptian. I mean, God is noticeably absent from the narrative. Like, I feel sometimes that God is absent from my narrative. Would you ever feel that? The very least uninvolved? I mean, Israel might have thought that God was fully absent and wholly uninvolved. And then we read this, verses 23 and 24. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew God is with you. God was with them. He was there all along, not just in the little glimpse we got with the midwives. He was there all along, blessing them, increasing them. Every time it says that the children of Israel increased in numbers and multiplied and grew very strong, who do you think was doing that? It was the Lord. He was in every detail of the narrative, every word and every verse. But the challenge is, and I just want to confession time here. Is good to, confession's good, correct? What's that expression? Confession is good for the soul, right? Confession is good for the soul. So confession time. I don't like that God works on his own timeline or that he does things that I think are illogical. True or false? Yeah, true. And you can't miss here, I. Are you ready for some theologies from teaching from the Bible that some people don't like? Some Christian people don't like. You ready for that? You can't miss that the crisis with Pharaoh and the enslaving of the people was God's plan. We're uncomfortable with it, I get that, but it, but it was it was God's plan. I mean, it was his way of pushing them out of Egypt and getting them on the road to the promised land. God had some things he wanted to accomplish in them. God had some things he wanted to accomplish through them. It was never going to happen in Egypt. That was just preparation time. That was just time to let them live in safety so they could grow mighty, to be strong. But as long as they were doing well in Egypt, there would be no impetus to leave. They would never see the need to be the people God intended. Never fulfill the mandate to be the nation that he had planned for them. Never be the people who would, who would uh, produce the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I mean, do any of us still doubt? Do any of us still doubt that God himself provokes the crises in our lives to accomplish some pretty important things? Do any of us still doubt that God provokes the crises so that we'll grow more fully into the image of Christ who was himself a suffering Savior? Do any of us still doubt that God provokes the crisis so that we'll grow in endurance and perseverance and our faith will increase? Do any of us still doubt that God provokes the crisis sometimes to get our attention because there is sin in our life that needs to be attended to? Do any of us still doubt that God provokes the crisis because someone else down the road is going to need to know that we persevered and endured through it, that we're going to be helpful to somebody along the way, encouraging them? Do any of us still doubt That all of these things that happen to us, that God provoking the crisis in our lives is for His glory and not ours. Could we grasp that we're part of something much larger that's impossible to see in the moment from our limited perspective? These these Jewish people, we're we're not talking about, I mean, we measure endurance in terms of, I I had to go through this for like two weeks or four weeks or a month, or this lasted a year and it was so hard. I mean, we're measuring stuff in days, weeks, months. and, And listen, I'm telling you, this is decades and decades and decades of pleading with God for help. The oppression was already happening when Moses was born. He was 40 years old when he escaped to Midian. Four decades of pleading with God for slavery to end, for them to be released. He spent 40 years in Midian being prepared. He's 80 years old when he returns to Egypt. And listen, that's endurance. That's a trial. Eight decades worth. Could we grasp that we're part of something much larger that's impossible to see in the moment? I think we just need to know something about life. I'm 51 years old. I have enough hard things in my own past that I know this to be true. And I've pastored for more than 20 years and I've walked through enough things with you and other followers of Christ to know this, that life is grueling and the glory comes at the end. I wish it were different than that. No matter what He ordains for you, God is with you. In fact, later in the series, we'll hear this from Moses. It's what I let off the service with here today, Exodus 33:16. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I mean, the, the truth is, we go through everything that everyone else goes through, correct? We go through everything that everyone who is not a follower of Jesus, we go through everything that everyone else goes through. Matthew five forty five. Jesus said, He, that is the Father, makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends the rain on the, the just and the... It, it rains on everybody. Life, life is hard for everybody. Please understand that. I mean, I know there's lots of preachers out there who have big churches that manage to fill all of their chairs every Sunday and keep doing what they do. A lot of them are on television who tell you a different story that somehow when you come to Jesus, everything is going to come up roses for you. That all of a sudden it becomes easy peasy and God just wants to pour out good things in your life and you would never ever hear a message like this in a church like that. And those preachers are selling you a false gospel. That's not what the scriptures teach. That's not what this passage is so clearly teaching. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Being a Christ follower doesn't grant you a free ride from difficulty and trial. What makes us distinct, you're going to go through everything your neighbor goes through. All the same trials. What makes it different between you and your neighbor is that God's going with you. God is with you through the rain. Lord, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? And as he goes with us, I love this. Here's some things from verses 23 and 24 that we can be absolutely sure of as we go through it. Are you ready for these? This is the turn. This is the great part of the message. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, cried out for help, and listen, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. He's hearing your prayers. He's hearing your pleas for help. Just keep praying. Just keep pressing in. Keep at it day after day, week after week. Don't become frustrated month after month. Don't stop persevering if your trial has not ended, if the difficulty is still with you, if it takes years and years and even decades. Keep praying to the end. Some Israelites lived and died. Their entire life was lived under the oppression of slavery. And the whole time, they're crying out to their God for help. Persevere in prayer. Don't ever stop praying. He's hearing your prayers if you're a follower of His. And He's affirming His love for you. Verse 24, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. Now this is not to say, when it says God remembered, this is not to say that God forgot or that it slipped his mind somehow. I hope you believe and know that God can't do that. But it it is to say this, that this was the time when God chose to honor his covenant. This is when God decided that the terms of the agreement were going to be met. We're talking here of the Abrahamic covenant where God would make from Abraham a great nation who would be a light to the world. The covenant is renewed here for Moses and the people of Israel. It's an affirmation of his deep love for them, for Israel, but not just for Israel because salvation is of the Jews and and, and the Savior comes from Israel. Then it's really an expression of his covenant love and faithfulness to us. It's an offer of salvation and redemption and hope. But I feel like this is something we need to pound away at over and over and over again because we struggle so much with it. It's just this knowing we're loved. We say it at the end of every service intentionally. There's a lot of other ways that you could end a service, a lot of other benedictions that we could say, but I just feel like the pressing need that we have over and over again is just to know to be affirmed in the reality that God loves us. Because we forget we forget so readily. And God says, I'm with you. God is with you and he loves you. His plans for you are perfect in every way. And then this, he's, he's seeing your plight. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel. Again, so much compassion in this phrase that Jesus Christ sees your plight. The scriptures say some things about Jesus that really helped me with this. To, to know that he not only sees it, that he's not just unattached, uh, uh, standing outside of it and going, I kind of identify with you. But no, he really identifies with us. He really understands when he sees our plight. Check this out in Isaiah 53.3. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah has these words about the Messiah, about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and notice, acquainted with grief. Hebrews 4.15, the preacher there says this of Jesus, He was not unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Tested in every way, gets it top to bottom. Whatever you're going through, please understand, God gets it. Jesus felt it. and He has compassion for you. He knows every struggle. He knows experientially the grueling nature of being a human being in a sin-affected world. He gets it. And finally this, he's with you knowing your need. I think in the entire two chapters, my favorite part are these last three words in the ESV, and God knew. God knew. He took notice of them. He had been all along. His plan had been well underway, though from an earthly perspective, a human perspective, it didn't necessarily necessarily seem so. He he knew and when i read that i just know he knows exactly what i need we we think we know what we need but god knows exactly what we need we confuse wants with needs but god knows exactly what we need they asked their prayer request was god get us out of slavery But not once do they ask for God to move them out of Egypt. Things were good for them in Egypt prior to the slavery. They weren't thinking that the cities they had built and the lives that they had built for themselves, that that was something they would ever leave. We're perfectly comfortable here. They're not asking to leave Egypt, but God knows what they need, and what they need is to no longer be in Egypt, that it's never going to be safe for them there again, and that the full plan that God has for them will never be fulfilled if they stay. They didn't know the glory that awaited them. They didn't know what God had in store for them. God knows what you need. Very often... You just ask for what you want. God, I think this is best for me. Give me this. Get me out of this situation. God knows what you need. We get so comfortable that we never think outside of that. You know, I love us so much that God has given us the church. I'm thinking about this truth that, that God knows. And I love so much that he's given us the church and what we have here and what we're seeking to build uh, together. I I need you to know that on earth there's nothing more important and nothing more amazing than this enterprise that we're trying to carry out here called the church. There's nothing greater than this. Nothing more amazing. What we're trying to do here as God's people is to build a community An uncommon community of people who unconditionally love one another and serve one another in Jesus' name. And our efforts to be on mission, to be the church, loving one another and literally being Christ to one another, that is our life's work together as the church. This is where we have chosen to walk along in our journey together and and I just love every part I I'm I'm being effusive in my praise for all of this, but I love it. I love that we can support one another and anticipate each other's needs and be there to walk alongside one another in difficult times and to rejoice with each other when things are awesome. And as great as all of this is, I'm more assured, I feel more comforted, and I'm more confident Not that you know my needs and are willing to meet those or that I know yours and I'm willing to meet them. But I'm far more assured when I read that God knows. And the way that plays out, because sometimes we're going to fail one another, but the way that that plays out so often in in kind of like a little miracle kind of way is when that card arrives at just the right time from you. When a little Facebook post appears, when a, when a text message comes, when, when you see me and you say just the right words to encourage me. And I know you have these experiences week by week with each other. And, and then I realize again, that's not, that's not you doing it. You didn't realize the timing of it. You didn't know where I was at. But that too is an evidence that God is with us, working through the body of Christ to mutually affirm, to build up, to love on, to care for one another and have compassion for one another. It is an awesome thing, top to bottom. Would you agree? God is doing. In all of that, God knows exactly what I need. God is with us. And I hope you've heard that top to bottom in this message. If you're bound for glory, you can be sure that no matter what's happened to you, what you've done or where you've ended up, God is with you, hearing your pleas, affirming His love, seeing your plight, and knowing just what you need let 's pray together and worship our God. Father, thank you so much for the assurance that we 've received from your word just now. You are so good to us in every way. you alone. Father, know what's been going on in this room, in the hearts and minds of those who've been listening. You alone know all the points of truth that have pierced hearts here. God, I would just simply ask for you to heal the hurting, to draw the rebel to yourself, to be patient with us all, Father, as we learn more and more, starting today, this whole A series father we learn more and more what it means to be on a journey with you and to do that together as the church father thank you so much for hearing this prayer and being with us here this morning hear our worship now as we sing to you in Christ's name
0: thanks so much for listening we always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners if God's been doing a work in you send us an email at info at harvestberry.ca and remember You are loved.